Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning. As we consider, uh, beginning in verse 12, you find that on page 988 in the Pew Bible. And as you're finding your way uh, to 1 Thessalonians, you'll, um, you'll note as uh, we get into this passage that in, in many ways this passage seems very self-serving. Um, the, the thrust of this passage, or at least part of it, is to respect your pastors. And uh, I, I want you to know that this was planned out nine months in my sermon planning schedule. So uh, you'll think, okay, he planned this for this particular day. As God is my witness, this is, this is all in the hands of God's providence. As we consider really the, the church's role, the relationship between the church leadership and the people. And I trust God will bless us as we consider, even though passages like this are not my, my favorite to preach, especially in light of what we call the church to do in response to leadership, but yet it is the Word of God and it is before us. And of course, it is the next verse in our study of First Thessalonians. And so I trust God will bless us and teach us as we hear now the Word of God, First Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. And are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this passage before us. We're thankful that in all these exhortations, Christ has shown us how to live, has perfectly modeled this for us. And so even as we think about the Christian behavior in these last verses in 1 Thessalonians, as we have for a number of weeks now, we help remind us that as we endeavor to live this way, we are simply endeavoring to live more like our Lord and through His power. And so help us and encourage us, come and convict us of sin where we need to be convicted, and that you would uh, help the weak where they need to be helped, and encourage the faint-hearted, admonish the idle, even as we consider your word, and it's our great pleasure to do so, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. In the year 1837, an incident occurred near Gaston, North Carolina, between Congressman George Dromgoul and hotel owner Daniel Duggar. The account reads, first on the scene shortly after sunup was the challenger, riding in a high-wheeled carriage with his friend and a physician. Moments later, the other arrived in his wagon driven by his friend. A bed laid in the wagon, which was to serve as an ambulance should one be required. Everyone was in formal dress. One man wore ballroom clothing. Lace ruffles and his coat lapels, silk stockings, patent pump shoes. The other was clothed in black pantaloons, a white vest, and a swallow-tailed cloak. The two men, filled with hatred for each other, said their good mornings with curt civility and looked the other way. Their helpers selected the ground, choosing a piece of level land near the riverbank, Walking together, the helpers stepped off ten paces with slightly exaggerated strides. Pegs were driven at the spots where the men would stand. A coin was tossed, and the ground was selected. The time had come. The doctor stood near the ambulance wagon, sleeves rolled up and forceps in hand, as the men walked somberly to the pegs which had been driven into the ground. They stood facing each other, each holding a pistol pointed downward. Suddenly the word was given, and each duelist raised his arm, cocked and uh, aimed, and fired quickly. The sound of the shots was almost simultaneous, and no one could tell who had fired first. There was a rustle of startled birds, followed by thick silence. When the smoke lifted, one of the combatants sank slowly to his knees and fell heavily face down, dead. This is a scene that is replayed that the history of humanity over and over and over again. Sometimes with pistols, 
other times with words, sometimes with armies, sometimes simply with hateful thoughts. We have within us a powerful and perpetual tendency towards vengeance, towards revenge. I read recently of a 48-year-old Russian man whose wife, daughter, and son died tragically in a mid-air collision in Europe in July 2002. It took him two years to hunt down the man he felt responsible, a Danish air traffic controller whom he murdered in February 2004. Revenge is sought in divorce court, in back alleys. It's sought out there on Highway 7. In office meetings, in school classrooms, in bedrooms late at night, and yes, sometimes even in churches. Perhaps this is what the Thessalonians might have been facing. You notice there in verse 13, Paul exhorts them at the end of this verse that they ought to be at peace among themselves. And then in verse 14, does he not say you need to be patient with them all? And again, for good measure, in verse 15, he tells them not to repay evil with evil but evil with good. We're not sure what's going on in this church. There seems to be some tension, some conflict here. And Paul comes near to the end of his letter, encouraging them in their conduct towards one another. And in doing so, in these last verses, which is just an exhortation after exhortation, as we read all the way through the end in the coming weeks, we'll see that he is showing them what the Christian community is to be like, how they are to treat one another, how they are to live at peace. In fact, Paul is constantly talking about peace amongst the people of God. He does so when he writes his letter to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Philippians. And now, of course, here in Thessalonica. You might be tempted to think, hey, Paul, do you just have one sermon? Is it always just peace? Do you just preach this wherever you go? The answer, of course, is no. But wherever he does goes, he finds interpersonal conflict to be an issue. And he writes to the people of God and says, listen, you're a family now. You're brothers and sisters now. And you ought to treat each other like a family. You ought to live out your identity and how you treat one another. I mean, parents, how many times have you told a child, hey, stop rubbing uh, your brother's face in the dirt, right? That's your brother, right? Okay, maybe we're the only ones, right? Live out your identity, Live like the family you are. You've been united in the church. You've been adopted by God. God is your father. Jesus, according to Romans, is your older brother. And now you have brothers and sisters and you ought to live at peace. And so, of course, the question is how? How do we do so? What does this gospel community look like? I simply would like to divide the verses before us this morning in two main points. Number one, that we ought to love our leaders. And secondly, we ought to help the hurting. All the while, as we seek to fulfill these exhortations, we ought to look to Christ as our Savior and as our example. And so let's begin with loving your leaders. Notice in verse 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. You know that in the uh, church in Thessalonica, the church had leadership. The church had authority. This seems to be how life works. This is according to God's plan. We need leaders. A nation needs leaders, a corporation needs leaders, sports teams need leaders, families need leaders, and yes, churches need leaders. We must have guidance, we must have direction, we must have vision, we must have management, we must have authority. And when we don't, when these institutions don't, what you have is failure, what you have is chaos. You want to find a culture falling apart. You want to find some place that is then full of chaos. Look for lack of respect in the authorities, whether it be teachers, parents, the police. Right? You've seen families where the kids do not respect the authority of mom and dad, and there's total chaos. You ever seen a family with a four-year-old in charge? Right? Is that admirable? You ever say, oh, well, I hope we could be like that one day? I would like to be that. It's just chaos. And of course, here now, Paul is referring to the leadership within the church. So who are these leaders? Well, they're identified by three activities. Now, note this is not three groups of individuals. Just a moment of grammar, if you will. He says, to, the, to respect those, there is the article, one, art, one definite article, those, followed by three participles, labor, who are over you, and who admonish you. So this is three activities of one group. The Bible elsewhere will call these elders. Elders. Sometimes, in fact, only one other place, they're called pastors. 
often called overseers as well. So we know, for instance, in Acts chapter 14, after Paul had gone from town to town and planted churches, he came back to those churches and he, quote, appointed elders in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. You see, Paul comes back to these churches and says, okay, what you now need is you need leadership. You're not just going to be left wondering what's going on, who's, who's guiding this ship, who's going to protect us, who's leading. And so he appoints leadership. He evidently did so in Thessalonica because I don't think they're looking around and saying, well, who's he talking about? These who are over us in the Lord. I wonder who he's referring to. No, they know exactly who he's talking about. In fact, they're identified, we believe, in Acts chapter 20, if you want to read about that elsewhere. But so here he has, he has these leaders that he identifies. And notice, as I mentioned, they do three activities. Number one, elders labor. They labor. Verse 12 says, respect those who labor among you. That word labor is often used for toil. It's uh, used to describe manual occupations, particularly used in reference to farming. In other words, elders are not given to leisurely work. This is demanding work. This is hard work. This is sweaty work. And I, I, of course, know that it's common uh, to assume a pastor works one day a week, right? And that's the joke that I hear. In fact, kids come up to my kids and they say, well, you're so lucky your dad only works on Sundays. Well, you could ask my family. They would uh, dissuade you of that truth. Um, that no, no, we work more than Sundays, that there's this, there is a great deal of work to do in this line of work. There are, of course, sermons to prepare and, and, and lessons to teach and people to disciple and the sick to visit and counsel of the trouble given. Uh, there's administration on top of that. There's uh, premarital counseling and burying the dead. And there is every day a mountain of emails. Okay? And that's the work that is labor. It's labor. In fact, the same word Paul uses in reference to elders in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, when he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who, here it is, labor in preaching and teaching. So elders particularly labor in preaching and teaching. They labor in preparing sermons. They labor in delivering sermons. Preaching is labor, right? You break a sweat when you preach. Right? I'm just getting going, okay? It will happen. I mean, I get my cardio every Sunday morning. If you're not sweating, you're not preaching as far as I'm concerned. This is labor because you need to have something to say. It is different to say there's a difference between saying something and having something to say. Well, how do you get something to say? A lot, a lot of labor throughout the week. And then finally you get this thing together and you deliver it the best you can as God is already preaching in your own heart. You give it to someone else. And you know what happens as you walk down off the platform? You know, the clock starts ticking again because Sunday is just seven days away. And then there's another Sunday that comes after that one. And on and on it goes. And you give everything you have knowing we have to do it again next week. Now, is it, is it joyful? You better believe it. I love it. Sometimes I feel like I'm the only person having fun at church. But I'm, I'm having fun every Sunday. I love it. Is it labor? Yeah. Yeah. I'm exhausted when I'm done. Right? Some of you are exhausted when I'm done. Okay? Okay? It's labor. And it's, of course, it's not just teaching. Labor is done not just in the office, in sermon preparation, or behind a lectern, or a pulpit. Notice what he says there. Labor among you. Among you. The word pastor in the Bible is used as a noun only once. Ephesians 4, verse 11, and he gave them pastors. It's almost always used as a verb. So we are told in Acts 20, 1 Peter 5, that elders pastor. Pastor is simply the Latin translation for the word shepherd. So it's literally elders shepherd. So the elders of the church are not simply a board of directors who make decisions. They are shepherds over a flock that Jesus loves. First Peter 5, as I mentioned, I exhort the elders among you. Here it is, shepherd, or literally pastor, God's flock. So a pastor is far more than something you are. It's what you do if you're an elder. Right? You labor, not just for the flock, but he says, among the flock. And so when we think about church leadership, we don't think about who gets to make the decisions. We, we think about who is among the people in their midst, laboring and toiling for their benefit. It is a labor. It's a weighty work. We're told in the book of Hebrews, and I remind my fellow elders this morning of this truth, that elders keep watch over your souls. That keep you awake at night in this position? Yeah. Who have to give an account to how you have labored among them. 
And I believe one day Jesus is going to ask me, did you feed my sheep? I believe he's going to say, did you seek the lost sheep? Did you stand guard against the wolves? Did you love my flock? And so sometimes leadership to some people looks enviable. Man, that looks really cool. I really like It's usually far different than what it looks like. Is it a privilege? Unbelievably so. Is it an honor? Perhaps one of the greatest in my life. Is it labor? Yeah, it is. Elders labor. You see, secondly, the elders also lead. The three things they do, recorded here in verse 12, they lead. You notice, and not a very popular uh, word, I trust. It says here in verse 12, they are over you in the Lord. Over you. Elders have authority over the church. We're told this over and over again. The same word is used in 1 Timothy 3, that they manage the church. 1 Timothy 5, that they rule the church. 1 Peter 5, that they exercise oversight. That's all the same word, that they are over you. We see this in Acts 20 and verse 28. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. All call elders overseers. That the elders are entrusted with the responsibility of the congregation. They are given by God authority over the people of God. They are over you in the Lord. Now, they are also under the Lord. So they're over people, but they're also under people. Right? They're over you in the Lord. Their authority is given to them by Christ to be used as Christ directs, uh, to oversee according to Christ's will, not their own will. And so they are to love them like Jesus loves them and guide them like Jesus guides them and serve them like Jesus serves them. In fact, this is really, as if you know the, the, the New Testament at all, the authority almost, almost always presented in the church is a, what we call a servant-like authority. So you lead, you have authority like a servant. Jesus will say you don't lord it over them. Right? So an elder serves the congregation, not because the congregation is its master. No, Jesus is his master, and he's called to serve those who Jesus has bought with his own blood. And so I think this is why the Bible repeatedly connects the role of an elder or a pastor with that of a father. And there's evidently parallels in God's mind. That is, you learn this kind of servant leadership in the home as a husband, as a dad. Now, let me ask you men. Which one of you, before you had children, thought, you know, I can't wait to have kids so I could boss them around, right? I mean, this sounds wonderful. I'm just going to have a jolly good time. You know, we're going to get a bunch of kids, right? And, and I, I'm going to get them to do the dishes, and they'll take out the trash, and they'll, they'll refill my coffee while I'm watching the game. And I just want to I mean, have six, seven, eight of them. I mean, this is going to be awesome. They're all going to do what I say. In fact, I could get a series of whistles, and they could each have their own whistle, and I can line them all up, right? And they can march to my tune. Well, that just sounds fun, doesn't it? Right? You want to be a dad so you can boss people around? No. Of course not. So why? Why would you want to be a father? Well, because you want to love them. And you want to serve them. And you want to protect them. And you want to teach them. You want to care for them. Remember when your when you're, you're little ones were young? Remember the little babies? And you, you kind of have to fight over who gets to change the diaper even. I mean, come on, you just, I just want to be there and I want to care for them and I want to love them and I, I want to change the diaper this time. Now, once they're two and they're still doing their business in the diaper, then it's a whole different story, right? Then you're thankful for teenagers in the house, right? Here you go, honey, right? Um, but we want to love them and care for them, right? A man says, I, I can't wait to have kids, not because I want to give orders, but because I want to love them and point them to Jesus. A man says, I want to serve as a father in the church, as an elder, not because I want to give orders, but I want to love them and point them to Jesus. So I ask you, church, are your elders over you in the Lord? Well, it says they are. Yeah. But not like a king is over his subjects or a boss is over his employees. Far more like a godly father is over his children. And evidently in God's estimation, we need this kind of leadership. We are designed for it. In fact, if you will bear with me just for a moment, I think this implies church membership. I know not everyone in the faith agrees with me on this. But the question I have is who, who is it that they're leading? Who are they over? Who is the flock? Who's to submit? You say, well, the church is. Well, who's the church? Is the church someone that just shows up on Sunday? Are they now with the church? Is this your first Sunday? Are you part of this church? 
Someone that's been here for a month, maybe? Are they now part of the church? Maybe six months? When do they become part of the church? I don't know. I, I think the way we do it here is that it, we define it. We, we give everyone the opportunity after they get to know us, and we get to know them, for them to raise their hands and say, yes, I want to be part of Hamilton Baptist Church. Count me in. I'm a member. We do that by affirming a covenant. We call that covenantal membership. And I, I think this is healthy. I think it's biblical. I think it's implied by Scripture, though not explicitly taught. And I have often, in my 20 years of pastoral ministry, met Christians who find themselves in a bind, met Christians who find themselves in trouble. And the first question I always ask them, well, tell me what church you're a member of, where you're receiving care, pastoral love, and leadership. And almost uh, uh, very often they say, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. And they don't believe in it to their own great disadvantage, I believe. And so may I encourage you to commit yourself to the church. If you have not, you should join a local church. It doesn't have to be this one. Join a church that preaches the gospel and that has godly leadership that you might be blessed in God's estimation by receiving that leadership. Elders lead. Thirdly, elders instruct. Elders instruct. You notice he says there at the end of verse 12, or he says, and admonish you. They lovingly deal with the wayward. They warn you. They keep you on your path. They say, oh, don't go there. Oh, don't read that. Again, this is very parental, I think. We say this to our kids. Don't watch that. Don't copy their behavior. This is loving admonishment. Paul would say to the Ephesians, I never failed to admonish you night and day with tears in my eyes. Why is he crying? Why is Paul crying? Because he loves control? No, I'm crying because I love you. He says, I I want to lead you. I want to admonish you. It's not heavy-handed. It's not holier than thou. It's it's fatherly. It's big brotherly. In fact, I think there are two extremes that that this gets abused. It's either heavy-handed admonishment and leadership and where you might break your children or it's lax and you give no direction and guidance and admonishment to your children. And there needs to be a, a balance, a loving admonishment. In fact, I think this is how elders care for you. They give you the word. They instruct you. They teach you. And sometimes, you know what they do? In love, they step on your toes. Don't they? And you, but <laughs> I think according to the word of God, you should receive it. You should even in your heart say, I need this. Smash me again. I need to hear this. This is how God cares for you. In fact, sometimes I explain to you, my job as a pastor in many ways is twofold. My job is to love you well and to tell you the truth, and sometimes those two seem in conflict. They're not in conflict. They might seem in conflict. They might be painful. They may be difficult to hear, but this is what the God, God says. They are to what? Admonish you. And therefore, I would encourage you, in particular members of this church, that you would place yourself gladly and willingly under the authority of the elders that you should prayerfully consider the admonishment when it comes, in particular on Sunday mornings, when, the, when an elder or a pastor will come and they will preach to you God's word. And my hope and prayers by now, if you've been around for a long uh, a while, you will be coming here not thinking, well, I really hope to get an interesting story. Tell me another cool story where they're shooting each other. That was good. I like that. Right? Well, I hope, I hope it's entertaining. I hope, I hope, it's, uh, I, I hope it's compelling. Well, we want it to be all those things. I don't want it to be boring. But you should come with a with heart attitude. God, speak to me through this man. Because I believe that you're going to say something to me I need to hear. And you're going to deal with something in my life that I need to address. And that, that somehow in your providence that this sermon will be related to what's going into my life. And when you hear that, you need to have it in your heart. I need to receive this, God. Because elders instruct. And they do so for the good of the flock. And they will find this work far easier when the congregation receives it and is thankful for it. You notice, as he deals with the relationship between the leaders and the, and the, and the congregation, he, he not only tells us what the leaders do, but he tells us what the congregation does. You see, the congregation respects, respects their leaders. He says there, of course, in verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. Honor those who bear this responsibility. I, I think one of the, one of the most insidious uh, realities of the fall of humanity is that there is in every one of us, I imagine, and more so as Americans, 
and a natural distrust to authority. Right? Adam said in his rebellion, I don't trust you, God. I don't think you have my best interest in my life. I'm going to kick you off your throne, and I'm going to rule myself. And I think we've been, doing, we've, been, we've been singing that song ever since. There is a natural distrust for, towards authority. I think it's getting worse, by the way. Yeah, have you seen the cartoon uh, that has two men reading the newspaper, and one guy says, uh, there seems to be a new study that Americans are becoming more cynical. The second replies, yeah, I bet. Right? Right? We don't trust leadership. And when we don't, we create a toxic environment. We look behind every word and search for every secret motive. And there's some secret plan. I, I won't soon forget a conversation I had here. I've been going on seven years here, serving as an elder and as a pastor here. I remember within my first year, a member came into my office and told me that uh, this individual had discovered my secret agenda. And that not only has this individual discovered the secret agenda, that a large group of the members of Hamilton Baptist Church were aware of the secret agenda. And now I, I would pique my interest because I wanted to find out the secret agenda too. I felt like I was the only one who didn't know. And so I said, well, please tell me what my secret agenda is. And they laid out for me the, my, like a six months of history of apparent decisions I had been making. And then uh, through a, a number of leaps and, and jumps, came to the conclusion of where they, they knew I was headed. And they were here to inform me that uh, me and, and my group, we we are, we are, we plan to stop you. We're going to stop it. And you know, I was actually pretty pleased because the direction I was going was the exact opposite. So yeah, please stop that because I don't want that at all. But there seems to be this, uh, this distrust in our heart. Right? And then what does he say? Respect. Respect them. That's what God's command. That doesn't mean flatter them. That doesn't mean fawn over them. I appreciate what David said here just a moment ago. Everything good and that is praiseworthy in, in, in Josh and not myself and even in our wives is not due to our natural instinct. I know what I was like apart from Christ. You wouldn't have liked that man very much at all. It's all because of the grace of God working in my life. And so if there's anything to be praised, it's, it's God needs to be praised. But so often, sometimes we go to the other extreme and we fawn over people when we flatter them and we create a culture, of per, uh, cult of personality. And we think, well, Mr. P, you know, he's the best thing that ever happened to us. And Mr. P, uh, you know, the, the church wouldn't survive without Mr. P. Well, Jesus might have something to say about that. And, you know, Mr. P could do no wrong. Well, his wife might have something to say about that. I mean, in my previous church I pastored, there was a pre previous pastor named Joe. I called him St. Joe. Joe was there about 30 years before I showed up. And all I heard from the old timers was, well, when Pastor Joe was here, we did this. And when Pastor Joe was here, we did that. And when Pastor Joe was here, it never rained, but everything was growing. And the birds were singing all the time. And, oh, and now we got you. Okay? And uh, th that's what it was. And there was this, this, this exaltation to this hero status. And I'm telling you, listen, the church needs leadership. But the church can never be dependent upon any one man. Not, not, a, not, not any one of us. Right? Not me, not you, not anyone. Right? And so it's not undying devotion. That's not what he's saying. And it's not disregarding either. Or even worse, despising. And I think we vacillate between the two. And the churches struggle with this. They raise a man so high, and they think, oh, well, we can't do anything without him. And sometimes, they, you know, they, they put him on a throne up on the platform and give him robes like he's some kind of angel, and he's got scepters and wands and all sorts of wonderful things. Or, or we think, well, well we, we don't even want you around at all. Right? And, and we, we vacillate between the two. And I just want you to hear the word of the Lord. He says, listen... Don't despise them, but don't disregard them. You ought to respect them. Now, to be perfectly honest, and I may step on a toe here, um, I, I'm, I'm surprised when the church asks qualified men to serve them, and then after months of deliberation and prayer, people will stand up in opposition to the direction they want to lead with very little thought and consideration. And I think if you want these men to lead, your disposition ought to be to follow. To follow. You know, I, I, I believe in congregationalism. I believe the Bible teaches that. I think, according to Scripture, that the final authority in the church lies within the membership of the church. I believe that with all my heart. And so if you're a member of the church, I think you ought to show up in a couple weeks and our members meeting on November 13th. This is your church. You ought to be there. Uh, I think Scripture instructs that. I believe in that. I believe the final authority. But if the elders are going to lead in a direction and you stand in opposition to the direction the elders lead, please do so with sobriety in your heart. 
And even if I can't be so bold, do so with a bit of trepidation. That God, please, I'm standing against my leaders. I, I, I'm doing so out of conviction, but I'm not doing so out of joy. I'm doing so out of, out of godly fear as I take this stand. I have a pastor friend just down the road who led his church in, in a, a certain direction, and he, he did so over months, and he called them all together, and they soundly defeated uh, the direction that the, that the pastor was trying to go. And then afterwards, they did kind of a victory lap there at the members' meeting in celebration of defeat of their pastor. And then they asked him to get up and preach to them the next Sunday. And I just don't get it, to be perfectly honest. I'll tell you not what I'm telling you, but I'll tell you what God tells you. I won't even interpret it. Here it is. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And let's just go a step further while we're at it. And we'll end and move on uh, just in a moment. But you notice the congregation esteems. They esteem, as you read in verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So this is not just appreciation. This is affection. Love them, he says. Why should we love them? Because they're charming? (laughs) Not always. Right? It's a great personality? Mm -mm. Because of their work. They give themselves to labor for your good. You keep in mind their work. You will find it easier to love them. You know the result? Look what he says in verse 13. What's the result of all this? Be at peace among yourselves. Do you like peace? Yeah, I think we do. And nothing will rip a congregation apart quite as fast and destructive as when leaders and the congregation are in conflict. And some of you know this better than others. And the devil loves to stir up quarrels and bickering. The devil loves to halt progress as we make of a church, and he will do this often in a lack of trust of, of leadership. On, uh, on the other hand, when the elders are laboring and leading and teaching and people are respecting and esteeming and loving, you know what he says you find in that church? You find peace. You find peace there. Now, I can only imagine if you're visiting here this morning and you're thinking perhaps, oh boy, what have I walked into? Because this place is about to blow up. Right? Because you've got the flowers and all the applause, and isn't that wonderful? But something's going on here, and this thing is about to rip apart, and this is the pastor's last ditch effort to plug the volcano before it explodes, and everybody goes running to other churches. And, uh, you know, uh, as far as I know, I could tell for visitors here this morning, as far as I know, nothing could be farther from the truth. Right? I'm just preaching the next verse here. We're just going on, we're just going through the book, and I come here, and I think by the grace of God, you want to celebrate the grace of God, by the grace of God, we are delighting in the spirit of God's favor, in which there seems to be unity among the church, in particular unity amongst the leadership, and uh, unity amongst the people and the leadership. So I do not today, please do not misunderstand this sermon, I do not speak on this topic to address a problem I speak on it to encourage and continue a pattern. In fact, in uh, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, remember he says, listen, I want, you to, I want you to please the Lord just as you're doing. Do so what is it? more and more. And so elders, just as you are laboring, labor more and more. And just as you're leading, lead more and more. Church, just as you respect and esteem, Do so more and more. In fact, you have honored Josh and I today, but as you are aware, we do not serve this church alone. There are other men who serve as elders. My brother Craig Sweeney, Dave Murray, John Clemens, and Butch Corson all serve you. You think it might be good to honor them today? Will you do that? Will you honor them? We ought to be thankful. We ought to be thankful for the men that God has given this church. And yet, as we've already established, let's remember whose church is. It's not my church. It's not Josh's church. It's not any of these men's church. It's God's church. I've been here for seven years. Some of you have been here 
I don't know, 70 years. But none of you have been here 130 years when this charge started in 1889. And so evidently God could, could have a place called, people called Hamilton Baptist Church without any of us. And it's in his church. So we might even say in light of this, who is Stephen? And who is Josh? And who is John? And who is Butch and Craig and, and, and Dave and Cody? One may plant, another may water, but only God gives the growth. And it's to him that we constantly turn that we constantly give thanks for the past of this church and trust him for the future. In fact, in particular, and I know I need to move on, I'm trusting him to raise up new elders. I want to speak to you men for a moment. I got here seven years ago. Our church was half the size it is. We had eight men serving as elders. We have doubled in size. We now have six men serving as elders. Some of you need to prayerfully consider should I, should I have an ambition to serve the church as an elder? And if God might be saying, maybe, yeah. You say, well, I'm not there yet. That's okay. You find an elder. You find one of those six men and say, listen, I'm thinking that the maybe one day God might call me to serve as an elder. That man can then, at that time, it may be six months. It may be six years. It may be 16 years. Can begin to meet with you and pray with you and, and teach you and disciple you that God might raise you up to serve in this position. We need to love our leaders. Now, we have to move quickly, don't we? It's, you know, listen, it's Pastor Appreciation Day. I might take an extra five minutes, okay? All right? To, to get comfortable. But anyway, uh, help, help the hurting, okay? Help the hurting. Here we go. So it's not only just in leadership, it's the people of the church. You notice here he turns to address the fellowship. The church, we need to care for each other. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, he says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Notice once again in verse 14, he addresses whom? The brothers. The brothers. Just like he did in verse 12. We ask you, brothers. Now in verse 14, we urge you, brothers. So who cares for these people's needs? Pastors? The elders? No, it's the brothers. So you see a member of the flock struggling. The solution is not simply to email the pastor. You care for them. You're a family. In particular, he identifies three groups of people who need care. The idle, the timid, and the weak. Admonish the idle, he says there in verse 13. Most understand this not to be lazy, but these are disruptive individuals. These are people that might be stirring the pot a bit. These are disobedient people. And what do you do with them? You admonish them. You warn them. You lovingly throw some cold water on their face to wake them up to the sin in their life. Now, does that sound like fun? No, it's not fun. But it's important. And it's loving. And far too often, we, in, out of self-love, we look the other way. We need to admonish them in love. Now, this is not permission to go up to every member in the church and say, you know, I'd I like to give you a piece of my mind. Pastor said, admonish you, here I go. All right? And that's not what we're talking about here. Okay? It's not the airing of grievances. This is, this is as you live in relationship and as people reveal their heart and as you you're draw close to one another as we seek to do here, that, that, that you, you lovingly and prayerfully, you warn them and say, listen, I notice in your life, I love you, I got things in my life, I'm not standing in judgment of you, but maybe you can't see this because you're blind to it, as we're all blind to our own shortcomings, can I help you in this? So I wonder, do you know anybody tripping? Do you know anybody following? Do you know anybody stumbling? You might take other people down with them. Do you know anybody causing a stir? What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you should do. Brothers, admonish the auto. Encourage the faint-hearted, he says. These are people who are struggling, worried, discouraged. Maybe people are overwhelmed. These are the, uh, could be not be more opposite of the idol. The idol are usually self-confident people who want attention. The faint-hearted are timid people who hang out on the fringes. And so you don't admonish them, you encourage them. You, you cup your hand around the struggling flame so it can regain its strength. Right? Our Lord says a, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, a bruised reed he will not break, and neither should we. Maybe you're smoldering here today. Maybe you're bruised here today. Jesus doesn't discard the bruised reed. He encourages it. He heals it so that he might make beautiful music through what most people would toss out. He takes the smoldering lamp and he makes it shine again. How does he do it? He uses the church. He uses us to encourage the faint-hearted. You want a very easy-to-read book that has a powerful impact on both my life and Pastor Josh? It's Practicing Affirmation. That's the title of the book. A wonderful, quick read, 
incredibly practical on how to identify what God is doing in people's lives and encourage them. Number three, help the weak. Help the weak. We're not sure who he's talking about. Maybe uh, this is the weak morally, some struggling in sin. Maybe this is the weak physically, those who have practical needs. I don't think it probably matters. We should help them both. We should put our arm around them and help them carry the load. They need to know in troubling times they're not alone. I remember it was in 2006 that I uh, went on a uh, backcountry snowshoe trip in the uh, Colorado Rockies for five days out in the backcountry. Snow was 15 feet thick, and, and of course all the trails are covered. I didn't see anybody for days, which was just fine by me as I'm up there. I was with my dad, and, and we were snowshoeing and, and just nav- got lost all the time, which was wonderful, and, and uh, navigating by compass and map out there. And I remember one day, snowshoeing is particularly difficult. Quite often, as I mentioned, the snow is 15 feet high, and it will cover little saplings, but it won't pack, the snow won't pack over the saplings. And you'll walk over the top of a sapling, and down you'll go. And all of a sudden, you'll be walking along, and you'll be up into your armpits in snow. And you'll try to pull yourself up with 60 pounds on your back. And, and you're cold, and you're wet. And there became a time when I was hiking that I realized, listen, I, I'm, a, I'm a little colder than I want to be. And I feel a little, little more lightheaded than normal. You know, we're up around 12,000, 13,000 feet above sea level. And, I, and I, I got to the point where I was talking to my dad, and I was struggling to put my words together. Now, if you, if you have any experience in uh, out, outdoor health concerns, uh, the, this is easy to identify as kind of the beginning stages of hypothermia. And hypothermia is when your body cannot generate heat faster than it's losing it. And it usually happens in very cold and wet conditions, of course, both of which I was in. And, and the body will actually pull blood away from the skin and surround the inner organs in order to keep them functioning. And so the, the skin becomes very cold and clammy to the touch. And so I knew um, as it dawned on me where, where the direction I, my body was headed that we weren't going to make our destination. We we're just going to have to find a place to shelter up. And so we, 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 we sheltered down and, and uh, pitched a tent. And the problem with hypothermia is like, well, what do you do with it? You, you put more clothes on, you might say, or you get in a sleeping bag. But all that more clothes does, it, all, clothes don't make you warm. Your body makes you warm. And clothes just keep the body heat next to you. That's what a sleeping bag does. A sleeping bag doesn't generate heat. Your body generates the heat. The sleeping bag captures the heat and keeps it next to your body. That's why you stay nice and warm. But if your body is pulling the blood off the, uh, the outer skin layer, your body is not generating the heat like it normally does. And so climbing into a sleeping bag when you're hypothermic does you no good. And so what you need to do, how do you do it? Well, you put, you put heat next to you. And so you get a sleeping bag and you get a buddy. In this case, my father. And you lie next to each other and you put that insulating layer around you. And so his body heat is captured there and he begins to warm you. The warmth of a healthy body brings life back to a body that's falling apart. That's what the church is supposed to do. Help the weak. Give them someone to hang on. Give them someone to say, listen, I'm here for you. So often we're attracted to the shiny members and the strong members and the charismatic members and the people on the fringes, the people struggling and stumbling, the people that are going to require a great deal of energy and time for us. We just kind of dismiss. Maybe someone else will help them. I can't take on that. The Bible tells us that we ought to help those people. We ought to care for one another. And when we do, we begin to treat each other as Christ has treated us. You understand that Jesus perfectly did, verse 14. In fact, he did it to you, didn't he? Was there a time in your life when you were not idle and wayward? Did he not admonish you? Did he not warn you of the danger of dying in your own sin? Did he not rouse you from idleness to the things of God so that you might flee to him? Were you not once faint-hearted? And Jesus, did he not encourage you when he called to you? Come to me, all who are weak and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. Were you not weak? And Christ did not wait for us in our own strength to seek after him. For we are told in the book of Romans that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly, namely you. See, when we live out verse 14, we're not simply being nice. Be a good Christian. Do these things. We are actually continuing the ministry of Jesus Christ. We are embodying his ministry. We are, as a church, after all, what? His body. 
And Christ continues to care for others through his body, namely the church, the faith family. And this seems to be the plan. As he says there in verse 14, he begins, we urge you. Right? So verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect your elders. But when we get to caring for one another, he brings it up a notch, doesn't he? He says, we urge you to do this. And so what a wonderful conversation you might have over lunch. How can we more effectively admonish the idle and, and encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak? What would happen in my life if I were to do that? And you were to do that. And maybe we are to do this together. And by the way, when you begin to minister to people like this, you know what you will need? You'll need a little something called patience. Patience. Because you don't help for an afternoon, typically. This takes a while. doesn't happen overnight. As you see there at the end of verse 14, what does he say? Be patient with them all. You know, the Bible continually talks about patience. Paul prays in Colossians chapter 1. May you be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might so that you might have... Right, finish it. Patience. You might think he's saying dramatic ministry, incredible speaking ability, miraculous healing powers. Man, may you be strengthened with all of God's might according to his glory so that you might have... Patience, he says. Patience. You need that prayer? Colossians 3 tells us to put on the Christian wardrobe. What do Christians wear? Funny hats. Is that what we're supposed to wear? What do we do? No, we, we, we wear patience. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Patience. Love is always patient. Right? We ought to be patient. Now, that's not surprising to you. No one's here thinking, well, i never heard about this before. Okay, patience. Wow, that's totally new. And, and so no one here is surprised. And maybe some of you are a little convicted, and you're saying, okay, that's right. I need to be patient. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be more patient today. And, and, and how many of you will actually make it to your cars before you lose it? Right? 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 And you say, well, what did the pastor say? I don't know. Uh, right? And I might not even make it out of the building, to be perfectly honest, you know. I got eight kids. They all have different ideas of how the day is going to go. And it is sometimes a bit of a challenge to wrangle everybody together. Okay? And, uh, and, and this is something that we probably all need to grow in. Patience seems to be very, very elusive to us. Our patience seems to be constantly tested. Don't you feel like your patience is tested all the time? I, in fact, I, I'm convinced that's why the DMV exists. Right? Right? right. You think, you say, no, they give out license. No, no, no. It is a construction of the devil to destroy the Christian virtue of patience. You want to see grown men cry? Go to the DMV. And they're not even crying by themselves. They're crying together there. Uh, And and, uh, you want want a good test of patience today? Get in the fast food drive-thru line behind my family, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we like 26 cheeseburgers. Three of those with double onions. Eight cups of water, and you got any group discounts, you know, and you'll be banging your head on the car horn. Come on, man, let's move, right? We're constantly challenged to be patient. I think we need a little help here. Where are we going to find it? How are we going to do this? I think you only find it in the gospel. Because you know who's patient with you? Our God is patient with you. Do you think God's ever tempted to think, come on, man. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been telling you this for years. Let's do it. Let's go. What's taking so long? Right? Let's get through the drive Let's go. Is he banging his head on the car horn? Come on. You think God is saying, well, how many times do I have to deal with this? Is he ever losing it with you? No. Not once. He's treating you with just unbelievable long-suffering, the Bible says. And the more you consider how God is patient with you, the more you will realize, listen, if God could treat me with patience, why can't I treat others? Even when they're evil to us, as we see lastly there in verse 15, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. If impatience is instinctive, what about revenge? I mean, I've been following Jesus for close to 30 years now, and I still have this instinct. When someone does something nasty to me, I rush to my defense. Anyone else still struggle with that? I rush to defend myself. I rush to attack back. And the Bible tells us, listen, that's not the way Christians are to act. No revenge, 
We are to forgive. We are to cover with grace and mercy. We are to take what people do as evil against us and we will return it to good. And so many Christians are dragging around bitterness in their heart from something someone did to them last week or last year or 20 years ago and they're miserable and they're making other people's miserable. And, and, and the Bible says that's not Christianity. That's not how we do this. We don't return evil for evil. In fact, we return evil for good. What does he say? That we always seek to do good to one another. That's the church. And let's just raise it up a little bit. And to everyone. Everyone. In fact, rather than retaliate, go to the opposite extreme. And the Bible says you are to do good to them. Work for good for everyone. Even to those who trouble us. Say, how am I going to do that? Well, I'll tell you there's only one way to do that. And to understand how God has treated you. You think you've ever been evil to him? Yeah. And what has he done for you? He has given you good, hasn't he? He has given you his son. He has put his son on the cross that he might die to pay the punishment for all your evil. And then he raised him from the dead as a proof that there is salvation found in Christ. And he has declared to us one day he's coming back and he's going to establish a new earth or what the Bible might refer to as the promised land in which we shall live there forever and ever and ever with him. He has just been good and good and good and good and good to you when you've been so bad to him. And then for you to receive all that goodness, and then when someone says na- something nasty to you, or you might have to actually tap on your brakes for a half a second on Highway 7 out there, and you get all revved up and the hit the horn or tailgate or all everything else that, that some of us men like to do, and women, you have your own issues, don't you? Right? <laughs> you forget what your God has done for you. You need to ground yourself in the gospel. This is not simply a list of to-dos. This is a call to delight in Christ and what he has done for you that you might find power to live like he has shown you. And so I wonder, imagine yourself at work this week or even at home tonight and you thought, because of my God, I'm just I just want to be patient with everyone in this house. And I just want to give good and good and good to everyone. I don't care what you do to me. I know what God has done for me, and I want to be like him. And imagine a church that just begins to grow in that more and more and more. And when we do, we shall show the glory of Jesus. Don't you want that, Hamilton Baptist Church? Show the glory of Jesus. Our Father, that's our prayer and our longing and our desire is to become